And uh, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the show dedicated to stories told through the medium of sound, showcasing the diversity and vitality of modern audio theater. Here your news, reviews, discussion, and of course, stories, and I am your host, Fred. Uh, and today, I hope we have time to be thankful for one more episode of Chatterbox Audio Theater, the great Tennessee-based group that brought us the supernatural thriller The Dead Girl. Uh, today, we'll be hearing an adaptation of In the Penal Colony by Franz Kafka, which I'm particularly delighted to play because, believe me, uh, Kafka audio dramatizations are few and far between. Um, today's story finds a distinguished foreigner visiting, well, a penal colony, which has, shall we say, some punishment techniques that are vestiges of the past. Um, enjoy Chatterbox Audio Theaters In the Penal Colony. Chatterbox Audio Theater presents In the Penal Colony by Franz Kafka. It's a unique apparatus. I stood in a small, deep, sandy valley, closed in on all sides by barren slopes, watching as the officer in charge made adjustments to his machine. I was to witness the execution of a soldier condemned for disobeying and insulting his superior. In addition to the officer and me, there were two others present, the condemned, a vacant-looking man with a broad mouth and dilapidated hair and face, and a soldier who held a heavy chain which bound the condemned. Assist us. While the officer spoke my language, it was clear that neither the soldier nor the condemned man understood us. There. It's all done now. Have a look at it, yeah. But, as I was saying, from now on, the machine will run itself. Up to this point, I had to do some work by hand, but now the apparatus should work entirely on its own. Of course, breakdowns do happen. I really hope none will occur today, but we must be prepared for it. The apparatus is supposed to keep going for 12 hours without interruption. But if any breakdowns do occur, those only be very minor, and we'll deal with them right away. Now, I don't know whether there's a commandant that already explains this apparatus to you. No. Ah, well then. This apparatus is our previous commandant's invention. I also worked with him on the very first tests and took part in all the work right up into its completion. However, the credit for the invention belongs to him alone. Have you heard of our previous commandant? Nine. Well, I'm not claiming too much when I say that the organization of the entire penal colony is his work. We, his friends, already knew at the time of his death that the administration of the colony was so self-contained that even if his successor had a thousand new plans in mind, he would not be able to alter anything of the old plan. At least not for several years. And our prediction has held. The new commandant has had to recognize that. It's a shame that you did not know the previous commandant. However, I am chattering, and the apparatus stands here in front of us. As you see, it consists of three parts. The one underneath is called the bed, the upper one is called the inscriber, and here in the middle, this moving part, is called the harrow. The harrow? Yeah, the harrow. The name fits. The needles are arranged as in a hero, and the whole thing is driven like a hero, although it stays in one place and is, in principle, much more artistic. You'll understand in a moment. So here is the bed, as I said. The whole thing is completely covered with a layer of cotton wool. The condemned man is laid out on his stomach on the cotton wool, naked, of course. There are straps for the hands here, and for the feet here, and for the throat here to tie him in securely. At the head of the bed, here, where the man, as I have mentioned, first lays face down, is this small protruding lump of felt, which can easily be adjusted so that it presses right into the man's mouth. Its purpose is to prevent him screaming and biting his tongue to pieces. Of course, the man has to let the felt into his mouth, otherwise the straps around his throat would break his neck. 
That's cotton wool? Yeah, it is. Feel it for yourself. It's a specially prepared cotton wool. That's why it looks so unrecognizable. I'll get around to mentioning its purpose in nine moments. So the man would be lying down? Yeah. Now listen. Both the bed and the inscriber have their own electricia battery in. The bed needs them for itself and the inscriber for the hero. As soon as the man is strapped in securely, the bed is set in motion. It quivers with tiny, very rapid oscillations from side to side and up and down simultaneously. You will have seen similar devices in uh, mental hospitals. Only with our bed, all movements are precisely calibrated, for they must be meticulously coordinated with the movements of the hero. But it's the hero which has the job of actually carrying out the sentence. What is the sentence? You don't even know that? I don't. Uh, Forgive me if my explanations are perhaps confused. I really do beg your pardon. Previously, it was the Commandant's habit to provide such explanations, but the new Commandant has excused himself from this honorable duty. The fact that with such, a, with such an eminent visitor, he didn't even once make you aware of our form of sentencing is yet again something new, which I was not informed about it. In any case, I am certainly the best person able to explain our style of sentencing. For here, I am carrying the relevant diagrams drawn by the previous Commandant. Huh? Diagrams made by the Commandant himself? Then was he in his own person a combination of everything? Was he soldier, judge, engineer, chemist, and draftsman? <laughs> he was indeed. Our sentence does not sound severe. The law which a condemned man has violated is inscribed on his body, carved into his flesh with the hero. This condemned man, for example, will have inscribed on his body, Honor your superiors. Does he know his sentence? Nine. He doesn't know his sentence? No, it would be useless to give him that information. He experiences it on his body. But does he nonetheless have some general idea that he's been condemned? Not that either. No. Then does a man not also yet know how his defense was received? <laughs> he has had no opportunity for defense. But he must have had a chance to defend himself. Uh, the matter stands like this. Here, in the colony, I have been appointed judge, in spite of my youth, for I stood at the side of our old commandant in all matters of punishment, and I also know the most about the apparatus. The basic principle I use for my decision is this. Guilt is always beyond a doubt. Other courts could not follow this principle, for they are made up of many heads, and in addition, have even higher courts above them. But that is not the case here, or at least it was not that way with the previous commandant. It is true, the new commandant has already shown a desire to get mixed up in my court, but I've succeeded so far in fending him off, and I'll continue to be successful. Mm -hmm. You want this case explained. It's simple, just like all of them. This morning, this morning, a captain laid a charge on this man that had been sleeping on duty. For his task is to stand up every time the clock strikes the hour and salute in front of the captain's door. That's certainly not a difficult duty, and it's not vending. It's necessary, since he is supposed to remain fresh, both for guarding and for service. Last night, the captain wanted to check whether this man was fulfilling his duty. He opened the door on the stroke of two and found him curled up asleep. He got his horse whip and hit him across the face. Now, instead of standing up and begging for forgiveness, the man grabs his master by the legs, shook him, and cried out, Throw away that whip, or I'll eat you up. Those are the facten. The captain came to me an hour later. I wrote up his statement, and right after that, the sentence. Then I had the man chained up. It was all very simple. I see. If I had first summoned the man to interrogate him, the result would have been confusion. He would have lied. And if I had been successful in refuting his lies, he would have replaced them with new lies and so forth. But now I have him, and I won't release him again. Now does that clarify everything? 
But time is passing. Uh, we should be starting the execution, and I haven't finished explaining the apparatus yet. Yes, of course. As you see, the shape of the hero corresponds to the shape of Einmann. This is the hero for the upper body, and here are the heroes for the legs. This small cutter here is the only one designated for the head. Is that clear to you? Will the commandant be present at the execution? It, that is not certain. That is why we need to hurry. Schnell. As much as I regret the fact, I will have to make my explanation even shorter. Uh, but tomorrow, once the apparatus is clean again, the fact that it gets so very dirty is its only fault, I could add a detailed explanation. But for now, only the most important things. When the man is lying on the bed and it starts quivering, the hero sinks onto the body. It positions itself automatic in such a way that it touches the body only lightly with the needle tips. Once the machine is set in this position, this steel cable tightens up into a rod. And now... The performance begins. As it quivers, it sticks the tips of the needles into the body, which is vibrating from the movement of the bed. Now, to enable someone to check on how the sentence is being carried out, the hero is made of glass. And now, the inscription is made on the body. Everyone can see through the glass. Don't you want to come closer and see the needles for yourself? Very well. You see, two sorts of needles in a multiple arrangement. Each long needle has a short one next to it. The long one inscribes, and the short one squirts water out to wash away the blood and keep the inscription always clear. The bloody water is then channeled here in small grooves and finally flows into these main gutters, and the outlet pipe takes it to the pit. As he began to demonstrate, I saw to my horror that the condemned man had, like me, accepted the officer's invitation to inspect the arrangement of the harrow up close. I could see how, with a confused gaze, he was looking for what he had just observed, but lacking the explanation, didn't succeed. He kept running his eyes over the glass again and again. I was tempted to push him back, for what he was doing was probably punishable when the officer noticed. Schnell, in auf! Behandle ihn so gefeitschlig! Er lenkt uns, Rengost, ab! Well, now I know all about it. Except for the most important thing. Here in the inscriber is the mechanismus which determines the movement of the hero, and this mechanism is arranged according to the diagram on which the sentence is set down. I still use the diagrams as a previous commandant here. They are. Read it. I can't. But it's clear. It's very artistic, but I can't decipher it. Of course, it has to be a script that isn't simple. You see, it's not supposed to kill right away, but on average over a period of 12 hours. The turning point is set for the sixth hour. There must also be many, many embellishments surrounding the basic script. The essential script moves around the body only in a narrow belt. The rest of the body is reserved for decoration. Can you now appreciate the work of the hero and the whole apparatus? Now, watch as I turn the machine on. Hmm? Do you understand the process? The hero is starting to write. When it's finished with the first part of the strip on the man's back, the layer of cotton wool rolls and turns the body slowly onto its side to give the hero a new area. Meanwhile, those parts lacerated by the inscription are lying on the cotton wool, which, because it has been specially plated, immediately stops the bleeding and prepares the script for further deepening. Here, as the body continues to rotate, throngs on the edge of the hero then pull the cotton wool from the bones, throw it into the pit, and the hero goes to work again. In this way, it keeps making the inscription deeper for 12 hours. For the first six hours, the condemned man goes on living almost as before. He suffers nothing but pain. Nothing but pain? Hmm? After two hours, the felt is removed, for at that point, the man has no more energy for screaming. Here at the head of the bed, warm rice pudding is put into the Lestricia heated bowl. From this, the man, if he feels like it, can help himself to what he can lap up with his tongue. 
no one passes up this opportunity. I don't know of a single one, and I have had a lot of experience. He first loses his pleasure in eating around the sixth hour. How quiet the man becomes then. The most stupid of them begin to understand. It starts around the eyes and spreads out from there. Nothing else happens. Nicht. The man simply begins to decipher the inscription. He purses his lips as if he is listening. You've seen that it is not easy to figure out the inscription with your eyes. But our man deciphers it with his wounds. Through it takes a lot of work. It requires six hours to complete. But then the hero spits him right out and throws him into the pit, where he splashes down into the bloody water and we quickly bury him. I observed the empty machine at work. The condemned man was also watching, but without understanding. He bent forward a little and followed the moving needle. Schneider, sein, Kleidung up! The soldier cut through the condemned man's shirt and trousers. The officer turned the machine off. And in the ensuing silence, the naked condemned man was laid out under the harrow. The chains were taken off and the straps fastened in their place. And now the harrow sunk down a stage lower, for the condemned was a thin man. The strap meant to hold the wrist snapped. Ugh, the machine is very complicated. Uh, now and then something has to tell or break. One shouldn't let that detract from one's overall opinion. Anyway, we have an immediate replacement for the strap. I'll use a chain, even though that will affect the sensitivity of the movements for the right arm. Uh, our resources for maintaining the machine are very limited at the moment. Under the previous commandant, I had free access to a cash box specially set aside for this purpose. There was a storeroom here in which all possible replacement parts were kept. Now he keeps the cash box for machinery under his own control. And if I ask him for a new strap, he demands the torn one as evidence. The new one doesn't arrive for ten days, and it's an inferior brand of not much use to me. But how am I supposed to get the machine to work in the meantime without a strap? No one's concerned about that. The soldier had just shoved the stub of felt into the condemned man's mouth, not without difficulty, when the condemned man, overcome by the irresistible nausea, shut his eyes and threw up. Oh, this is all the commandant's fault. My machine is as filthy as a pigsty. Haven't I spent hours trying to make the commandant understand that before the execution there should be no food served? But the new lenient administration has a different opinion. Before the man is led away, the commandant's women cram sugary things down his throat. His whole life he's fed himself on stinking fish, and now he has to eat sweets. But that would be all right. I'd have no objections, but why don't they get a new felt the way I have been asking him for three months now? How can anyone take this felt into his mouth without feeling disgusted? Something that a hundred men have sucked and bitten on as they were dying. I want to speak a few words to you in confidence. May I do that? Of course. This process and execution, which you now have an opportunity to admire have no more open supporters in our colony. I am its only defender, just as I am the single advocate for the legacy of the old commandant. When the old commandant was alive, the colony was full of his supporters. I have something of the old commandant's persuasiveness, but I completely lack his power, and as a result, the supporters have gone into hiding. There are still a lot of them, but no one admits to it. If you go into a tea house today, th that is to say, on the day of an execution, and keep your ears open, perhaps you'll hear nothing but ambiguous remarks. They are all supporters, but under the present commandant, considering his present views, they are totally useless to me. And now, I am asking you, should such a life's work come to nothing because of this commandant and the women influencing him? Should people let that happen? Even if one is an Auslander, a foreigner, and on our island for only a couple of days. But there's no time to lose. 
Discussions are already taking place in the Commandant's headquarters, to which I am not invited. Even your visit today seems to me typical of the whole situation. People are cowards and send you out, a foreigner. You should have seen the execution in earlier days. The entire valley was overflowing with people, even a day before the execution. Fanfares woke up the entire campsite. I delivered the news that everything was ready. The whole society had to attend. The machine was freshly cleaned and glowed. For almost every execution, I had new replacement parts. In front of hundreds of eyes, all the spectators stood on tiptoe right up to the hills there. The condemned man was laid down under the harrow by the commandant himself. What nowadays has to be done by a common soldier was then my work as senior judge, and it was an honour for me. And then the execution began. No discordant tone disturbs the work of the machine. In the silence, people heard nothing but the groans of the condemned man muffled by the felt. It was impossible to grant all the requests people made to be allowed to watch from up close. The commandant, in his wisdom, arranged that the kinder should be taken care of before all the rest. Naturally, I was always allowed to stand close by, because of my official position. Often I crouched down there with two small children in my arms, on my right and left. How we all took in the expression of the transfiguration on the martyred face. How we held our cheeks in the glow of this justice finally attained and already passing away. Oh, what times we had, my friend. I see. I don't want to upset you in any way. I know it is impossible to make someone understand those days now. Besides, the machine still works and operates on its own, even when it is standing alone in this valley. And at the end, the body still keeps falling into that incredibly soft flight into the pit, even if hundreds of people are not gathered like flies around the holes the way they used to be. Ah, do you see the shame of it? I, I... Uh, yesterday, I was nearby when the Commandant invited you. I heard the invitation. I know the Commandant. I understood right away what he intended with this invitation. Although his power might be sufficiently great to take action against me, he doesn't yet dare to. But my guess is that with you, he is exposing me to the judgment of a respected foreigner. He calculates things with care. You are now in your second day on the island. You did not know the old commandant and his way of thinking. Perhaps you are fundamentally opposed to the death penalty in general, and to this kind of mechanical style of execution in particular. Moreover, you see how the execution is a sad procedure without any public participation, using a partially damaged machine. Now, if we take all this together, surely one could easily imagine that you would not consider my procedure proper. And if you didn't consider it right, you wouldn't keep quiet about it, for you no doubt have faith that your tried and true convictions are correct. It's true that you have seen many peculiar things among many peoples and have learned to respect them. Thus you will probably not speak out against the procedure with your full power, as you would perhaps in your own homeland. No. But the Commandant doesn't really need that. A casual word, merely a careless remark is enough. It doesn't have to match your convictions at all, so long as it corresponds to his wishes. I am certain he will use all his shrewdness to interrogate you. You will say something like, Among us, your judicial procedures are different, or with us, the accused is questioned before the verdict, or we had torture only in the Middle Ages. For you, these observations appear as correct as they are self-evident, innocent remarks, which do not impugn my procedure. But how will the Commandant take them? How will he take them? I see him now. Our excellent commandant, the way he immediately pushes his stool aside and hurries out to the balcony. I see his women as they stream after him. I hear his voice. The women call it a thunder voice. And now he is speaking. A great explorer who has been commissioned to inspect judicial procedures in all the countries has just said that our process, based on the old customs, is inhuman. 
After the verdict of such a personality, it is, of course, no longer possible for me to tolerate this procedure. So from this day on, I am ordering and, and so forth. You want to intervene. You didn't say that what he is reporting. You didn't call my procedure inhuman. By contrast, in keeping with your deep insight, you consider it most humane and most worthy of human beings. You also admire this machinery, but it is too late. You don't even go onto the balcony, which is already filled with defrauen. You want to attract attention, you want to cry out, but a woman's hand is covering your mouth, and I and the old commandant's work are lost. You're exaggerating my influence. The commandant has read my letters of recommendation. He knows that I am no expert in judicial processes, and if I were to express an opinion, it would be just that of a layperson, no more significant than the opinion of anyone else, and in any case, far less significant than the opinion of the commandant. You don't know the commandant. For he and all of us are concerned, you are, forgive the expression, to a certain extent naive. Your influence, believe me, cannot be overestimated. Your verdict is no doubt already fixed. If some small uncertainties remain, witnessing the execution will remove them. And now I am asking you, help me with the commandant. How can I do that? It's totally impossible. I can help you as little as I can harm you. You can do it. You could do it. I have a plan which must succeed. You think your influence is insufficient. I know it will be enough, so listen to my plan. To carry it out, it's necessary, above all, for you to keep as quiet as possible today in the colony about your verdict on this procedure. Unless someone asks you directly, you should not express any view whatsoever. But what you do say must be short and vague. People should notice that it's difficult for you to speak about the subject, that you feel bitter, that if you were to speak openly, you'd have to burst out cursing on the spot. You should give only brief answers, something like, uh, yes, I have seen the execution, or yeah, I've heard the full explanation. That's all. Nothing further. For that will be enough of an indication for people to observe in you a certain bitterness, even if that's not what the commandant will think. Naturally, he will completely misunderstand the issue and interpret it in his own way. But my plan is based on that. Tomorrow, a large meeting of all the higher administrative officials takes place at the headquarters under the chairmanship of the commandant. He, of course, understands how to turn such a meeting into a spectacle. You will certainly be invited to this meeting. Now, tomorrow, you are sitting with the women in the commandant's box. With frequent upward glances, he reassures himself that you are there. After various trivial and ridiculous agenda items designed for the spectators, the judicial process comes up for discussion. I will stand up and report on today's execution. The commandant thanks me, as always, with a friendly smile. And now he cannot restrain himself. He seizes this excellent opportunity. The report of the execution, he'll say, or something like that, has just been given. I would like to add to this report only the fact that this particular execution was attended by the great explorer whose visit confers such extraordinary honour on our colony, as you all know. Even the significance of our meeting today has been increased by his presence. Should we not now ask this great explorer for his appraisal of the execution based on old customs and of the process which preceded it? Of course there is the noise of applause everywhere. Universal agreement, and I am louder than anyone. The commandant bows before you and says, Then in everyone's name I'm putting the question to you. And now you step to the railing. Place your hands where everyone can see them, otherwise the ladies will grab them and play with your fingers. And now finally come your remarks. In your speech you mustn't hold back. Let truth resound. Lean over the railing and shout it out. Yah, 
Yes, roll your opinion as a commandant, your unshakable opinion, or whisper them so that only the officials underneath you can just hear them. That's enough. You don't even have to say anything at all about the lack of attendance at the execution or about the torn strap, the disgusting felt. Nine, I will take over all further details. And believe me, if my speech doesn't chase him out of the room, it will force him to his knees, so he'll have to admit it. Old Commandant, I bow down before you. That's my plan. Will you help me? No. No. But you must. I am opposed to this procedure, even before you took me into your confidence, and of course I will never abuse that confidence under any circumstance. I was already thinking about whether I was entitled to intervene against this procedure and whether my intervention could have the smallest chance of success. And if that was the case, it was clear to me whom I had to turn to, first of all, naturally, the Commandant. I find your conviction genuinely moving, but it cannot deter me. So, the process has not convinced you. Well then, it is time. Time for what? But he did not answer me. Instead, he walked over to the condemned man. Jochi, du bist frei. Nun frei bist du. Was sagst du? For the first time, the face of the condemned man began to show signs of real life, and he began to shake back and forth as much as the harrow permitted. Ah, you're tearing my straps, be still. We'll undo the right of way. We'll pull you out. This process required a certain amount of care because of the harrow. The condemned man already had a few small wounds on his back, thanks to his own impatience. From this point on, however, the officer paid hardly any attention. He came up to me, pulled out the small leather folder once more, leafed through it, finally found the sheet he was looking for, and showed it. Yeah, read that. I can't. I've already told you that I can't read these pages. But take a close look at the page. Zai Garesht, it states. Now you can read it. Be just. That could be. I do believe that's what's written there. Good. He climbed up the ladder, holding the paper. With great care, he set the page in the inscriber. When the officer was finished, with a smile, he looked over the whole thing and all its parts once more. He climbed down and began to unbutton the coat of his uniform. In spite of the obvious speed with which he undressed himself completely, he handled each piece of clothing very carefully. He now stood there, naked. I bit my lip and said nothing, for I was aware that what might happen, I had no right to hinder him in any way. The officer was now acting in a completely correct manner. In his place, I would not have acted any differently. Was tut er? Weiß ich nicht. The officer had turned towards the machine. If earlier on it had already become clear that he understood the machine thoroughly, I was now alarmed at the way he handled it and how it obeyed. He had only to grasp the bed by the edges, and it already began to quiver. The stump of felt moved up to his mouth. I could see how the officer really did not want to accept it, but his hesitation was only momentary. He immediately submitted and took it in. Everything was ready, except that the straps still hung down on the sides and they were clearly unnecessary. The officer did not have to be strapped in. Die Riemen, sie sind lose. When the condemned man saw the loose strap, he waved eagerly to the soldier and they ran over. Hardly were the straps attached when the machine already started working. The bed quivered. The needles danced on his skin, and the harrow swung up and down. Everything in the machine interested the condemned man. For me, it was embarrassing. I was determined to remain here until the end, but I could no longer endure the sight of the two men. Go home! Nachthauser! Was? Nein! Ich muss bleiben! Ich muss sehen! 
Then I heard a noise from up in the inscriber. The harrow was not writing, but only stabbing. And the bed was not rolling the body, but lifting it, quivering up into the needle. Obviously the machine was breaking up. I wanted to reach in and stop the whole thing, if possible. This was not the torture the officer wished to obtain. It was murder, pure and simple. I stretched out my hands, but at that point the harrow was already moving upwards and to the side with the skewered body. Then, one last thing went wrong. The body would not come loose from the needles. The blood streamed out, but it hung over the pit without falling. At this point, almost against my will, I looked at the face of the corpse. It was as it had been in life. I could discover no sign of the promised transfiguration. What all the others had found in the machine, the officer had not. Later that day, I made my way to the tavern where the old commandant was buried. He had been denied, I was told, a place in the cemetery. There, in the tea house, under a table in the corner, was a gravestone that read, Here rests the old commandant. His followers, who are not permitted to have a name, buried him in this grave and erected this stone. There exists a prophecy that the commandant will rise again after a certain number of years, and from this house will lead his followers to a reconquest of the colony. Have faith and wait. When I had read it and got up, I saw the men standing around me and smiling as if they had read the inscription with me, found it ridiculous, and were asking me to share their opinion. I acted as if I did not notice, walked to the harbor, and left the penal colony. You have been listening to Chatterbox Audio Theater's production of In the Penal Colony by Franz Kafka, featuring Marcus Brown as the officer, Bill Short, as the Traveler, and Thomas Cole as the Condemned Man and the Soldier. Produced and directed by Andrew Sullivan. This is your announcer, Tom Badgett. Chatterbox Audio Theater is a nonprofit, web-based community theater that advances the exchange of ideas by channeling creativity and artistic collaboration into recorded audio works that enlighten, entertain, and inspire. Download all of our shows free at www.chatterboxtheater.org. And that was Chatterbox Audio Theater's In the Penal Colony. What of dozens of works they've done, you can download them all for free at chatterboxtheater.org. Chatterbox Theater, theater with an E-R, on the good old American way to spell it. Um, also had the opportunity to speak with producer Bob Arnold, writer Kyle Hadley, two of the most enthusiastic guys you will meet um, in the world of contemporary audio theater. Uh, we talked about what they're doing with Chatterbox, what they love about audio theater, the form, um, stories in general, um, how they produce their shows, and in particular, the wild story of the dead girl, how it came about, how they produced it, um, what they think of it now. Um, hope you enjoy talking with them as much as I did.
Awesome. Well, you know, we have a huge, huge pleasure here on Radio Drama Revival to be welcoming um, Bob Arnold, Executive Director, Kyle Hadley, the Artistic Director, Writer, um, as well for Chatterbox Audio Theater. Um, wonderful, wonderful work, contemporary audio theater being produced down in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, welcome, guys. It's so a pleasure to have you on Radio Drama Revival at last. Well, thanks for having us. We're thrilled to be here. Yeah, and, and how, how is the weather in, in your respective neck of the woods? <laughs> Uh, in Memphis, it is dark and rainy. Oh, okay, right. <laughs> in Kansas City, I'm I'm about uh, 20 stories up, uh, and it is uh, uh, the beautiful sunsets and cold as hell. <laughs> ah, well, okay. At least we all got the cold misery in common. Uh, you know, it, it's you know I can tell you you've, you've got tons of stuff up on the site. I think I counted at least a dozen different stories. Um, oh, more, more. We've got. Yeah, we're pushing twenty at this point, I think. Yeah. So, you, so you got stuff, and it's and it seems to be covering you know a huge range of work. Um, but but skipping all that, I'm hopefully listeners now you know from from hearing the dead girl have at least a bit of a feel for your work. Um, but why don't you you want to introduce? Uh, I'm not sure who's the best person to answer this question, but um, you know just introduce us to Chatterbox and maybe tell a little bit about how you got going. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Chatterbox, uh, it's hard to pin down where it got going. The story I have been telling is that uh, another friend of mine, Andrew Sullivan, who was our technical director, and I, uh, the the idea for this sort of came after our alma mater got a radio station after we had already graduated, um, and we had just sort of started talking about doing radio drama. Um, but a friend of mine from high school actually recently reminded me that he and I, when we were in junior high, I think, stayed up all night one night uh, over at his house writing a radio script with you know no no idea of how this thing could be recorded or, or anything like that. And I had completely forgotten about this, but it, it makes me think that maybe this this idea had sort of been in my brain for, you know, since who knows how long, since birth, who knows. Um, but the interesting part of the story is that uh, once the idea was formed, I, I had, uh, just in my group of friends, Kyle, um, who is a fantastic uh, actor, writer, and director, um, Andrew, who is uh, those things and is also uh, adept technically good at recording stuff. Uh, another friend, Dave Mickle, um, who is a web guy, and another friend, Jordan Barre, who has a marketing background. And it just seemed like oh. the the group was just right there and, and ready to be uh, convened into into one project. And this project hit all those different things. Um, so it made this sort of wonderful uh, confluence of, of people. Awesome. And so when you when you finally decided to get the uh, the first one, did you uh, you sort of cast it internally, or did you need to start finding um, actors or people from outside um, that that group? <laughs> Kyle, you remember the oh, first we, show we did? Yeah, I remember. We we did we did a number of things. I think kind of in secret that would probably never see the light of day, like cast the To me, I don't know. I mean, that was my first memory of Chatterbox, sort of giving birth a little bit, just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that was it. The first, so the first absolute first show we did was in my living room, um, and it was it was me and Kyle, and we did a, a very quick version of the cask of Amontillado, and uh, and we're just sort of making it up, you know, not not the story, but the recording process, just sort of making it up as we went, and and we were, I remember being over at my house at at midnight, and we were doing a scene where Kyle's character is being walled up in the cellar, and he was just screaming bloody murder <laughs> in my house in the middle of the night, and we thought, well, we're gonna kick this off with a, a police charge of some kind well, there's a bit of a drama right right in there uh, so between then and now um, wh- how have you uh, honed your craft or picked up things you've gone along it's a, a really good question I, I, would, I would even uh, say though too I mean like uh, in, in my mind uh, a lot of this started before um, 
before Chatterbox too, because Andrew, Bob, and I would, uh, you know, we would not just write stuff and send email each other things we're writing or working on, but we'd also we're all songwriters as well, um, sort of as a hobby or in our own time, and we learned how to also understand the recording world by writing and recording our and sending it to each other and playing with that in software. And I think that gave us a sort of, you know, a wonderful little, you know, preamble into the world of, of audio theater as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, Bob, I guess, you know, I've learned, if, if anything, I've learned uh, to have a deeper, deep, I've always had a respect, but I've, had a, I've got a much deeper respect for the stuff that Andrew does um, than, than I ever would have uh, before because, you know, it's, now it's, you know, you have to sort of know it to be able to manipulate it and work with it and understand how best to tell your story. Um, yeah. So I would say I, I, every time I work on something, I pay more and more attention to the sound and to the, the little details in the, in, in the recording process. So. Yeah, the technical elements, definitely. And I think, you know, Fred, you know, this is, this is something that you just kind of learn by doing. Um, and we we started out, you know, we had a bunch of we had some scripts, not a bunch, but we started out um, and and really just felt our way through the first, I would say five or six shows that we did, um, and had you know I think they're successful and they're still on the Chatterbox site and I, I like them all very much. But every time we would do a show, we'd get a little better at something, um, and I think since then we have continued to get just a little better at, at every kind of different element um, to where, you know, back then uh, we, we had a way of doing the music, um, you know, everything that Chatterbox does, I should say this, this is, this is uh, important of who we are, everything that we do as much as possible is performed live so that it's not a, uh, it's not a real studio setup where a person comes in and records their lines and someone else records their lines and we splice it all together later. We download sound effects from the internet and music and stuff like that. We, we rehearse them as live performances. We rehearse them like you would rehearse a play, um, and we, we perform them as much as possible in one space at one time. Okay, and does that, does, yeah, and does that extend to um, – Doing the whole uh, recording in one session, or do you sort of stop and go between different scenes? No, at that extent, recording one session. Um, we, the only re- the only reason we stop is if there's a, a horrible flub, or and and even then we don't really stop. We just sort of take a quick pause, try not to lose the momentum of the scene, um, and go on. And and we take out, uh, you know, we clean it up as much as we can afterward and post. Um, but the idea is, by the time we're recording, we want it to be as seamless a take as possible. I mean, it's really interesting, though, too. I mean, it's it's uh, there's something to be. Uh, we can't quite put our finger on it yet. I don't I don't know quite how to define it, but there is something kind of amazing in capturing that live feel. Um, you know, it's it, it makes you feel as if you are in the room, and the scramble of getting it all done and, and actually being as uh, you know, as, as accurate as you can on your cues, and um, you know. But I mean, like the, uh, my favorite thing, though, is and uh, either either as a director or as an actor in Chatterbox is the the, the sort of panic in the actor's eye. <laughs> there's something really interesting that we're, we're learning about that panic. I mean, it's genuine. The things that come out, they can be they can be so much more genuine and urgent, um, which you know perk your ears up even more. You can, you yeah. know, it's easy to tell when someone's lying. It's easy to tell when someone's telling the truth, you know. <laughs> well, I remember hearing something uh, about music, about computer-generated music, and how you can tell when a person is playing versus when a computer is playing, or at least this was true at one time, because the computer playing is perfect. It's literally perfect. Every every moment uh, is broken down scientifically, mathematically, um, and, and there's something that doesn't hit you quite right in the human ear because we're used to slight imperfections. And I think the way that we do Chatterbox shows introduces those slight imperfections that let you know this is real, this is actually happening here, and it does. It gives it that, that weird, indefinable energy. 
Um, and then on top of that, we just hate doing post-production work. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, that, that that's great. You know, um, you know, I have a slightly different approach in that I like to do things in the field, but again, you know, it's pursuing that kind of aesthetic of, of getting um, of raw a certain rawness, a certain quality of, of performance that you don't necessarily get if you are yeah you know you can read lines a thousand different ways and, and but just taking in the the lines read well and, and gluing them together does not uh, an audio drama make. Um, agreed, agreed. Yeah, and there's there's something you know we I have I would have a tendency otherwise I know to sit there and tweak the pauses and and go through those hundred lines and pick which one had quite the right inflection you know down to even the the syllables maybe and this this prevents me from being so anal retentive about the whole thing. And so when it comes to sound effects, then you are they. Um, are you performing them? It sounds like you're performing them. So you're you're pretty much making them up, or um, do you sometimes use some atmospheric effects in the in the uh, space that you're working in, or um, you know, do you have a guru who's the sound effects guy who's got that big um, bag of weird gadgets and um, humdings that make the different sounds, or you know, how, how does that, that element come together? Yeah, I mean, like you know, uh, we we originally started with uh, with the creating every sound that was that you heard. Um, coming from some kind of object in the room. Um, and I don't know if it, Bob, I don't know if this started before the dead girl, but I remember in, in the, in the dead girl part one, especially it was, or maybe it was part two when we were exploring the idea of thunder. And, and I got really sort of, you know, interested in the real thunder as opposed to shaking a sheet metal thing. Um, and so we, we started entertaining this idea of cueing sound effects, um, as being that sort of, I mean, cause you're still cueing it live in the room and it's not a post, it's not a post thing, you know, I mean, we had, so, I mean, uh, Eric Sefton, who was one of the producers on The Dead Girl, um, you know, he had Live Thunder um, recorded, and it was all queued up, and, and, you know, like, there was, we set levels appropriately um, for a mic, for one of our mics, sound effects mics, in front of, in front of the speaker, and at a certain point, you know, he would, he would roll it, and we experiment with that, but really, I think, you know, I'm, 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 I'm sort of pulling away from that as much as possible now, and going back into what, you know, what Bob was rig- originally uh, looking at as well was you know making these objects in the room the sound um, you know and it, I'm just a stickler for metaphor so <laughs> I need to need to let go of some of this realist thinking <laughs> well that's that's to me though that's one of the most fun and, and charming things that we have to offer is that yeah, yeah we do we have this whole collection of sound effects stuff um, and it's just you know it's it's boxes and boxes full of stuff that we have collected and you you just sort of get to play and figure out what makes the proper sound. Um, but Kyle's absolutely right. Like, you know, what used to happen when we just started and we were just feeling it out is that we would kind of set ourselves up for that. And then if we got into production and something wasn't working, we would just say, okay, well, we'll have to go back and do this later. Um, and that's where really only the only kind of post-production stuff we have done uh, as far as adding sound effects in is when something doesn't work um, in, in actual performance. And and then now, like you say, uh, these these cues, these live cues, um, in the same way that in old time radio, the sound effects guys had turntables, and they would have to. Yeah. You know, yeah. There's still a, there's still that skill involved in dropping the needle at the exact right moment when when the sound effect needs to be cued. Um, so yeah, we have been able to sort of have, find that happy medium of of realism, um, things that that are happening there live in the room. They do involve people paying attention and being on cue and being on point. Um, but they don't detract from the the realism of the show. <laughs> and it's uh, funny too, like the the rat race of of <laughs> of the people working on the sound effects. Sometimes that so we did a production of the Bob did an adaptation of uh, Cupid and Psyche. <laughs> that I remember walking into that rehearsal and there were like eight <laughs> actors just 
darting around the room quietly like ninjas <laughs> on crack or something. It was just ridiculous how they were moving around. And, and But they, the thing is, they knew the show. They knew every breath of it. Um, you know, they, they, they knew the rhythm of it. They knew exactly when to, to move this object and to bang this object against that object. But, it, but to watch this picture was kind of maddening. It was sort of like, what is wrong with these people? There's <laughs> like no time to get neighbor. bored. <laughs> yeah, Bob had neighbors peering into the window. He would have been asked to leave the community. Sometimes we go completely out of our way to, to, to be absurd about a sound effect, too. You know, I, mean, I remember, again, in, in episode one, you remember, Bob, we, we decided to, to put a microphone in the car. <laughs> we had like a lavalier mic that was yeah. a traveling mic, a wireless mic. Yeah. It was kind of fun, though, you know? Like, that was, yeah. it was really exciting to sort of like, we needed to hear the sound of a car opening turning on and driving yeah. and we did that while, were, while the actors who were supposed to be in the car were in the, in the actual like recording space and someone else with a mic on was in the car uh, <laughs> you know I mean it's, it's those kind of absurd cool fun stories that sort of just it's just those quirky things that sort of that become more and more attractive to us, I think, as well. You know, like <laughs> sure, sure, no, and it gives you and it gives you that that little nth element that you don't get. Uh, you know, again, you know those little imperfections. Uh, and then just one more point, I want to get in the dead girl, but I I, I want to ask you, Kyle. So you um, mentioned earlier that you're in um, Kansas. Do you do you fly to Memphis then? Uh, it sounds like you're you're obviously not doing this remotely. Oh, well, actually, I, I am doing it remotely, but I've just I've, I just moved to Kansas City, Missouri, um, in uh, May of this okay. year, um, and uh, to, to, I'm the assistant artistic director at the Kansas City Rap, um, and I've actually started sort of a, I mean, I don't know, we're still, we're still figuring out how this is working, and it's working quite fine, actually, because what's happening, what's happening is we got Chatterbox started in Memphis, and it's become, it's become its own name, and it's become its, uh, people recognize us for what we are, and it's, it's, it's started a really, you know, genuine excitement uh, about the work we're doing, and when I got to Kansas City, the first thing I did was, for the Kansas City Friends Festival, I um, organized a uh, uh, a group of actors and decided I would uh, I would per- participate in the festival by doing an audio show for Chatterbox, um, and I just pulled the first thing that I wrote and directed in the show called Six on our website. Um, decided, well, hell, this would be a really fun live show to do, um, uh, just <laughs> given the nature of its uh, of the subject matter. Um, and so I you know I pulled some actors together and and kind of set up camp here as well in Kansas City. Uh, now I I didn't know that I would sort of you know, start a satellite version of, or start, you know, satellite chapter, I guess, of, of, of Chatterbox when I got here. But I knew I would continue working with Chatterbox, um, be it as a writer or as a director or as an actor anytime I could, um, you know, because so much of what we do doesn't have to be done um, like real theater. Like, I don't have to go to Memphis to do this. I can do my work here and send a script to Bob, Bob to direct it, or I can organize actors here like I did for the Kansas City French Festival and, and find new producers, new people to work with and start branching out and meet, making new collaborators and colleagues um, and start sort of spreading the good word of Chatterbox. Um, <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? And, 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 and get more people invested and interested. And, but, you know, and that's, that's kind of what we did, you know, um, Bob came up for the the French festival as well, and because I, I wanted people to put a face to the name of the man who started all of this, you know, and, a, and Bob's such a you know a good friend of mine and longtime favorite collaborator of mine. I, you know, uh, it was it's it's sort of it's uh, it's one of my 
it's one of the proudest things I've ever I've ever done. Actually, was putting six up at the, the Kansas City Fringe Festival and watching all these people who don't know anything about me or anything about Bob or anything about Chatterbox just becoming obsessed with this idea of audio theater, which it, it sort of reminded me of the feeling that Bob and Andrew and and uh, Dave and and, and uh, Jordan and and, uh, and I had when we were sort of starting this thing, it was just, it was so exciting and new and different and cool. And, and you knew that your audience could be anywhere and anybody, anybody who had access to the internet. Um, so it started, you know, this whole thing about being in Kansas city is really sort of opening up my mind, um, about, uh, you know, different programming and things we could be doing and, uh, reaching more people. And, you know, I think that's, that's something that's really interesting to me is that it's working so far. (laughs) Um, so changing gears, I'd like to talk about the dead girl, um, specifically, um, how did that, how did that uh, come about? Is it a story, I mean, did the story drive you to produce it, or was there a certain time when you were looking to, uh, you know, with Chatterbox, do something a little bit different that, that led to it, or, you know, how, how did that, what was sort of the genesis of that particular story? Um, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> um, I had been, I had just written and directed six, as I said earlier, and I, I wanted to contribute something for the Halloween slot, um, and I knew it was going to be, you know, I knew it was going to be a, a horror story. Um, I just don't get that opportunity much as a playwright for the stage to to write that kind of material. And I'm obsessed with that kind of material. I'm a big fan of the scary, the sort of horror genre and the, you know, scary movies and so forth. Um, I just, I, I love being scared. I love myself sort of being scared. And I also love the idea of how audio theater can contribute to that, you know, given it's <laughs> that you almost create the world of the story in your own head, you know. When you listen to our plays, you become the set designer, you become the, the costume designer and the director, and um, and th- that sort of started sticking with me. So I was thinking, like, well, what what is it? Like, what story should I, uh, you know, what story do I really want to write here? Um, and at the time, for some reason, I had been sort of fascinated with my uh, uh, my my grandfather who had died you know, a long time before this. You know, he died when I was in fourth grade. But there was some, you know, there was we were moving some stuff around in our house at the time, and you know, I came across some materials that reminded me of him and. And I just remember, I just kept thinking, like, this guy's a great character. You know, he was uh, a beautiful man, flawed man, but a beautiful man. And, uh, uh, and I wanted to write something with him as the protagonist. That's sort of f- the frame of who he was as a protagonist. Uh, but I also wanted to write something that was inherently Southern. Um, I just, I, the, 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 there's, there's, there's poetry to me in, in, uh, in the South. You know what I mean? There's, there's a different kind of character in a Southerner. And there's, you know what I mean? Like, there, there's... Just, to me, there's more. To, there's more. It's more of a rich way to tell a story for for myself, like to, to to focus it in on the South and make these characters Southern. It's just what I know, I guess. Um, and there's there's mystery in the Southern man, and um, and so I put those things together, and I had this character, but and I knew I knew that what I wanted to tell was the story of a girl who died but didn't die. That's about what I knew when I started writing it. You know, I, I, it got bigger as I kept writing the story, and I knew how the ending would be, but I knew I couldn't fit. I knew I couldn't fit the ending into the into one episode, um, so it grew into two. Um, and then I, I realized that once it grew into two, okay, great. Then I actually have more room to sort of let this thing live a little bit more and and get into details about some of these some of the characters in the southern town. Um, and uh, and then then. <laughs> Once it got to two, I realized no, no, it's not gonna, it's not gonna work. It's gotta be not three. Quite, not quite there yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And by the time it got to three, it really, you know, it really was able to sort of uh, stretch its legs, um, and uh, I, I felt like, you know, I almost there was a, there was a moment there when I thought it was gonna go into four, uh, but. Uh, uh, but my good friend, uh, my good friend Bob, <laughs> probably you know, talked you out of it. Uh, 
Yeah. Well, well, well it's not, I mean, it was it was a it was a strange process for me because I, I was I would I'd never written anything that big before, um, nor had I written anything in in such sort of like uh, episodic ways. Like I just I was thinking in in completely a new way, and it was it was so educational for me as a as a writer to sort of learn how to how to tell the story you know, keep the cliffhanger at the end and then keep the story moving the next time, have the cliffhanger and keep the story moving. Um, and, I, you know, like, it, it, I, I don't normally think that I, I, I write with intentions of having a cliffhanger, but it was fun to explore that. You know, it was fun to explore that, the idea of, of having a, a series. Um, and it just, you know, right now I'm writing another one right now that's even more, is even larger than The Dead Girl. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think what I learned from The Dead Girl, though, is... Um, uh, make sure you have your your good friends close to help you cut. <laughs> <laughs> the the fun part from from our side, and this is really all I can add to that question, is that uh, it was a complete trust fall uh, on our part because whereas Kyle knew where the story was going, nobody else did. Um, the actors had no idea after when when we recorded part one, they didn't know what happened in part two and and why these things were happening in part one. So uh, <laughs> so I think, uh, and of course I would I would not do this with many people, but with Kyle, Kyle I trust completely to to wrap it all up and to make it make sense and. And I think he does just in the, in the right amount to where you it leaves you still questioning because um, we definitely when we got the third script we definitely sat around with the cast and and sort of talked about wait a minute what does all this mean what does happen what how does this end you know and had a great conversation about it but up until that point all the the confusion that you hear is real that that that's brilliant sure well yeah no it was it was just delightful because you know again I I'm. Um, you know, you find so much horror out there, and so you know, and horror is one of those genres where if you fall on your face, you fall on your face like you don't in any other genre. But I, you know, I just, I just found it marvelous. It was fresh and new, and and I'm, I'm kind of thinking it as sort of like um, Exorcist meets Wormwood <laughs> a little bit. Um, <laughs> I think a friend of ours described it as a theological noir, which I think uh, is yeah. about right. Yeah, no, it, and it's good because you've you've seen that you know you've seen the the, the down and out preacher in in fiction before, but you you treat it in a way that is is so very character driven, and 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 you know you, you do get a, a feel for for you know the, the texture of the the landscape, and it's not like we are these people who are forced to endure this supernatural story. The story, um, you know, the, the the character is very much part of that story, and we get rooted in him early on. So I, I think you deliver really well on that point. Um, you know, so how, oh, yeah, and how how so how did that fit in? What's um? It sounds like this was one of the more unusual stories you did. Um, on, on the timeline of Chatterbox um, Productions, where where did this fall? This yeah, well, we launched our website in on September in September of '07, and this one <laughs> we posted in October. So it was it was pretty soon after. Now we had a bank of sure. I think seven shows before we launched the site. Um, yeah, so it was not the first show we did, but it was it was still pretty early on. Um, and I think we were recording it about a year ago, Kyle, is that right? Or, yeah, it was. It's so, it's so weird. It was about a year ago. I was just sitting there thinking about that, yeah. And I think, in, in fact, Bob, I think we had rehearsal the first read-through, I think, the following day after our launch party. Is that right, or is it the next that, the day after? It, or is it it was, you're right. It was something like that. It was something like that. So, yeah. A lot of people were angry about that. but <laughs> <laughs> We were just tired. Uh, <laughs> so it, it, uh, it, it was easily the most ambitious thing we had done to date. And in a lot of ways, it's still the most ambitious thing we have done. Um, and it's certainly the, the largest, you know, it's, that's the only thing we have, I think, that's three, three episodes long. Um, yeah. 
So it was a, it was one of those big steps for us. And I'm always looking for what's, what's the next big step? What are we going to do next to really confuse ourselves and scare ourselves and challenge ourselves? And, and this was definitely something like that. Yeah. And so, so what, what do you have in the works now? Like, um, you know, you mentioned earlier, Kyle, some of the stuff that you, um, not quite sure where the Kansas city is going to pan out. Um, do you, have, do you have anything that's definitely in the pipeline now or things that you're, you know, considering doing that you're pretty excited about? Yeah. 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 Um, I, I'm, I'm currently, um, Working on uh, well, okay. Uh, I'm I'm sort of teaching a class at uh, UMKC here in Kansas City, Missouri, um, about audio theater, and the class has really kind of become a, um, if anything, a, a, a workshop room for me and for this massive new project that you know that, that I've been writing over, over the course of the summer, um, really early fall, I guess. Um, and you know, Bob Bob has read. Uh, Thank, thankfully, Bob trusts me because he's only read, I think, the first two episodes, and there are three right. episodes in this one, and this is far far larger than The Dead Girl. It has um, over 35 characters, in it, um, <laughs> of which will be played by different actors because there is no small character in this particular one. There is no sort of like tertiary character or anything like that. So we have, like, we have, uh, right now it's sort of like, how do we accommodate a space to record with all of these voices? You know what I mean? Like with, with all the sound effects. That, I mean, we literally have a team of people uh, working on the, this, the, uh, the, you know, that are producing this thing. We have, I think there's one guy behind the board, three guys on mic, one guy sort of like, you know, working with various actors and on, on how you push them back and pull them, and pull them forward. And then one guy that's going to help out with uh, post work. Um, so it's, it's, I mean, and that's just, and that's just the, the production team. Um, you know, it's a we long have, way like, from the shows we recorded in my living room, isn't it? I know. Yeah. I know. It's <laughs> it's an auditorium, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. You might. Like it's, it's one of those things where like, I shouldn't be doing this. I really should be doing <laughs> 30 minute piece with four actors. But, Kyle, but as soon I as you start having to, as soon as you start having to cater, we'll know that we have arrived. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We need a craft service table. That's what we need. Right. Yeah. Um, but this, but this is like, also a horror, uh, kind of a horror story, right? Yeah, it is. It is. It's called. It's going to be called surfacing, um, and it is. Uh, it's about there. There was a good friend of mine, named Matt Reed, um, has been sort of skirting around with uh, writing a play, an actual play uh, about this. Um, and uh, I love Matt Reed to death, but he's a busy, busy actor. Um, so with his permission, uh, <laughs> um, I was I, I'm doing an adaptation of this this idea of this concept, um, which is uh, you know it's based on an urban legend. Um, some drillers in Siberia in the 70s apparently came across um, a nine mile deep cavern or hole in the ground, um, and upon they, they were in order to sort of the measure of the seismic uh, vibrations, they lowered down this contraption to record. And when they listened to the recording, they heard millions and millions of people screaming in pain and suffering. Um, so what they had allegedly discovered was that were, were the sounds of hell. Um, and that fascinated me, and especially in the time in which we're living, you know, right now, I mean, a time of, of uh, where we don't exactly know what's, what's next in the world. You know, like, I just, I, just, I love the, this particular piece, I'm taking it out of the South and setting it literally in, in Kansas, uh, I mean, in Missouri, in upstate Missouri, um, with the idea that it being like the heart of America, um, and uh, the, the show hopefully will not just sort of examine or, or play around with this sort of the scary nature of what if there is a hell up beneath the earth and all that kind of stuff. But really, I wanted to focus more on the, the psychology of America as well. Um, you know, the surface beneath us, the, what is you know what what lives beneath us, what sort of screams beneath us, um, the sins we we uh, the, the, you know the sins that go unconfessed and the um, the secrets that go 
unconfessed or untold and the things that we do to other people that, you know, that we keep to ourselves and the sort of inner lives that we have that conflict constantly and daily with our external lives. Cool. And that we're shooting to have that one on the site early next year, I think. Isn't that right, Kyle? Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully so. like late, late, late January, hopefully. Yeah, um, or so. wow. just January. Something like that. Yeah. So other than that, we, we just posted, uh, we did a, a two hour live Halloween show um, on a radio station here in, in Memphis, WKNO. Um, oh, that yeah. was, that was uh, a real kind of a, a marathon for us, which was great fun. Um, so that just went up to the site. You can go hear that uh, now on, on www.chatterboxtheater.org is our website. Um, so wrap it, we wrap that up. Uh, next week we are recording two short uh, myth shows. Um, we've got some more site gag. We have a sketch comedy troupe called Site Gag. So we have a couple of more site gag shows in the can waiting to post. Um, we've got another show uh, we call a Chatterbox Showcase that's three short plays that are sort of vaguely thematically interrelated, um, and we've got one of those that we're polishing up right now. Um, we're going to be, early next year, we're actually mounting another uh, a live stage production um, out at Germantown Community Theater, which is uh, Germantown's a suburb of Memphis, um, and we are creating a show based on writing from area high school students. So uh, we have been going into different schools around the, the area and doing writing prompts with the students, and we're going to take what they've created um, and, and mix it all up and, and put it together and, and come up with some sort of performance, audio performance piece that will be on stage that, we'll, of course, we'll also grab and, and put on our website. Oh, man. Well, it sounds like you guys are really cooking then. <sighs> yeah, there's a lot going on. You know what? <laughs> uh, and I, I feel like, though, Brad, I feel like we have just started scratching the surface. You know, there's all this stuff yeah. that we could do with audio, and it, it, it really it keeps me up at night. I think, oh, my God, what if we did... You know, what if we did it live on the radio? What if we had an improv troupe? What if we started getting into documentaries? What if we, you know, just, just who knows where all this could lead? Oh, that's absolutely killer. Well, and, and they, everybody can find it. Chatterbox, is it chatterboxtheater.org? Chatterboxtheater.org, yes. Yeah, org, absolutely. And then, and, and then you also offer it for free, which is another pretty ambitious move because it's, Getting to the quality where people would, some people would be, would have a mind at least to charge for it. Or sure, I'm glad you. I'm glad you said that. Um, I've, I, we have all always, I, I think, kind of felt like by doing this and and by having the opportunity to do this and do this now when the internet is up and when you know and and really strong um, that we're we're participating in something that is that is larger than just you know the 2.99 that we might get for a download. Um, yeah. We're we're putting work out there and we want it to. We really genuinely want people to listen to it to respond to it to create their own work based on it to you know get excited about it and get excited about the potential of of people just just doing things for the sake of art for the sake of of enrichment or or entertainment or whatever it is um so there's the you know i could i can i could talk about this for a while this is my little philosophical soapbox but i am i am sort of opposed on a very fundamental level to charging for our work i think it it is created by a community and it belongs to an even larger community. So you want to be like a Grateful Dead mixtapes then? <laughs> yeah, hey, if we ever get in that many houses across the country, I will die a happy man. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's also, I mean, like, uh, you know, it just reminds me, like, like I said, you know, like before all of this, you know, Bob and Andrew and I were still sending each other 
stuff we were working on. Um, and it was always so cool just knowing someone was going to read it, someone was going to look at it, someone was going to listen to it. Um, and just in a selfish way, like I, I know that if I put something on that website, someone's going to hear it. You know, and that that's satisfying. Yeah. An artist. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no lonely dustbin of history do they do they sit in. All right. Well, awesome. Um, Kyle, Bob, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me to be on Radio Drum Revival. Um, I hope that I can, in, in my small part, um, get more a few more extra ears, maybe people who, who haven't stumbled across your great site already, um, and to keep spreading the word about this wonderful audio thing and, and what you can do with it. And um, thanks so much for your contribution to the art. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Brad, and kudos to you for this podcast. This is this podcast is how I started really learning about contemporary audio, audio theater and what's going on out there. So I think you are doing a, a good service as well, my friend. All right, knock on wood. We'll try to keep keep the flame alive. And that was Bob Arnold, Kyle Hatley of Chatterbox Audio Theater. Again, the URL, chatterboxtheatertheaterer.org. Um, next week, we kick off our winter programming with an excerpt from Shadow of the Bear, a story inspired by a Grimm's Brother fairy tale set in modern-day New York. Uh, it's a great winter treat and will be followed up with work that gets increasingly Christmassy as the big day rolls in. Um, and meanwhile, if you can't wait for more, of course, you can check out the blog, radiodramarevival.com. In addition to a handy link to subscribe to the podcast, you will find previous episodes, scattered bits of audio drama news, articles, and spectacular reviews, um, both by, of my own and by Chris Duker with the Malleus series. And while you're there, why not leave a comment or two? Um, you can also find us on iTunes, search for Radio Drama Revival. Um, that wraps it up for this week. Uh, till next time, keep your mind and your ears open. Thanks for tuning in, and have a great week.